Good morning, loved ones. I'm so happy that we have this time together, and I pray that wherever you are today, that this will just be a time of blessing for you, and I pray that you will just feel the Lord speak to you in a mighty way. Won't you join me in prayer, and then we'll jump right into our lesson from Matthew. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you and we love you. And Father, I ask that you just bless this time that we share together. Lord, I ask that you will just increase our understanding and increase our belief so that we might follow you more faithfully, more humbly, and more obediently. Lord, speak to us now. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, so far in Matthew chapter 9, we've seen a number of people question Jesus and his motives and his actions. And the scene at the beginning of this chapter with the paralyzed man, we saw the scribes ask the question, who does this man think he is? And last week we saw where the Pharisees came and asked Jesus why he dined with sinners and tax collectors. And today, as we pick up in chapter 9, in verses 14 through 17, we're going to see another incredibly uh, similar situation arise. We're going to witness as yet another group of people come to Jesus with a question for him. And this time, the question is about Jesus's approach to worship. And the essence of the question that is going to be asked of Jesus today is, is this. Why don't you do things the way we do them? Why don't you do things the way we've always done them? And in his response, we're going to see that Jesus saves us from joyless ritual, that he empowers us for joyful obedience, and lastly, that Jesus brings us the joy of the new covenant. And again, just as we did last week, as we work through this passage, we need to be asking ourselves this question. Who am I in this passage? Am I the one that thinks they have everything figured out and that Jesus is the one doing things the wrong way? Or am I willing to be changed by Jesus? So let's dive deeply now into this passage and let's see what Jesus has to say. It says this in Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. Then John's disciples came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth, because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. 
And so, loved ones, we find ourselves in the exact same place where we left off last week. We see that Jesus is still at what we presume to be Matthew's house, and he is still there enjoying this dinner with his disciples, with tax collectors, and with sinners. And we also remember that Jesus associating with these people, being around, sharing a meal, having fellowship with these sinners and tax collectors, we remember that this rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. The Pharisees were incredibly put off by this, and they could not understand why Jesus would spend time with people like that. And so after Jesus tells the Pharisees off and reminds them to go and learn what the scriptures truly mean, we see in verse 14 where another group of people comes to Jesus, and they have questions about his, his methods and his views as well. But this time, the visitors are disciples of old cousin John the Baptist. And John's disciples ask this question. They say, why do we and the Pharisees fast a lot? But your disciples don't fast at all. And before we even tackle this question, I want to make sure we see the very incredibly ironic thing that is happening here. We've all heard before the phrase that politics makes strange bedfellows, which means that certain causes can force people who are very different to come together. Very unlikely uh, friendships and alliances can arise when it comes to certain things. And here we do see an unusual duo formed between the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees. These two groups, the Pharisees and John's disciples, they could not be more different. Where the Pharisees were the theologically strict, stuffy, uh, cold shirts of the legalist movement, John's disciples would be something more of a charismatic movement. Let's not forget who their leader was. John the Baptist lived in a desert. He wore an outfit of camel hair. He lived off of locust and wild honey. Neither he nor his followers fit any kind of established religious mold. They were uh, starkly against the religious establishment of the time. Nor did John and the Pharisees like each other. If you remember, at least on one occasion, John referred to the Pharisees as children of vipers. So there was certainly no camaraderie here between these two groups. But if there was one thing that could bring even these most unusual and opposite rival factions together, it was observing the law and doing what it said. John and his disciples may have been eccentric, but they certainly did not want to toss the law out. And so John's disciples come to Jesus and they say, even we and the Pharisees agree on fasting, so why don't you and your disciples fast? Why don't you guys do things the way we do them? And loved ones, at its root, this question is about worship. 
We remember that fasting was and still is a way that people can worship God. They do this to show their need for God. And that is just as much true now as it was in Jesus's day. And so when John's disciples ask Jesus why he doesn't fast, they're asking why he doesn't worship like them, why he doesn't worship the way the Hebrews have always worshiped. Why is Jesus ignoring the traditions? But let's understand some very important facts here. We know for a fact that Jesus did indeed fast. We uh, previously in Matthew, back in chapter 4, we saw where he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights while he was in the wilderness. And nowhere in the scriptures did Jesus ever tell people not to fast. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, he told people not to brag about their fasting, not to draw attention to the fact that they're doing it. But Jesus never told anybody not to fast. And with that, as far as the law itself was concerned, there was only one mandatory fast that was required, and that was on the Day of Atonement. So any fasting done above and beyond that, that's a matter of personal choice. It's not a matter of obedience and compulsion. But we also need to remember the reason behind the fasting. That's just as important as the fast itself. Previously, when we've looked at fasting back in the Sermon on the Mount, we talked about fasting appropriately being done for reasons of consciousness, contrition, and conciliation. And that fasting in its truest sense was to be an acknowledgement of one's unrighteousness and their need, their desire for God, and to be made clean by Him. And so the way that the Pharisees and presumably John's disciples, the way that they went about fasting was wrong. Because they went and they did extra fasts, not to show how unrighteous they are, but to make people think they were more righteous than they truly were. So even among the Pharisees and John's disciples, there was a misunderstanding about why a person should fast. And we see here in this text that these folks are upset with Jesus because his approach doesn't fit within their misunderstood perception of what worship is. Even if they are wrong for doing things the way they do them, they're still mad at Jesus for not being like them. And all of this is made even more ironic and complicated by what we see Jesus doing here when these disciples of John come to ask this question. What do we see Jesus doing here? What is he doing? He's at a table enjoying fellowship, a meal. He's eating with sinners and tax collectors. And so John's disciples come in and they say, wait a minute, you're eating with these people and you don't even fast what are you doing? Have you lost your mind? But what neither John's disciples nor the Pharisees, what both of these groups don't understand and what we often don't get today is that Jesus came here to save us from joyless rituals, 
Jesus does not want us to be Stoics. He does not want us to be devoid of joy. He came to give us life and joy and to give us, uh, give us these things more abundantly. Jesus's whole purpose was to come and be the fulfillment of the law, to free us from this system of ritualism, so that no longer would we have to painstakingly observe the law and try to earn back God's favor. Christ has come and saved us from that. And Christ came to show the Pharisees and John's disciples that they were the ones worshiping wrongly, that their joyless rituals weren't what God really wanted. God never wanted us to be enslaved to joyless, emotionless tradition. God wants us to experience joy, and he wants us to overflow with it. And what we're beginning to see is that Christ came to show us what true worship looks like and to give us the ability to have joy in our worship. And this is precisely what we see him refer to in verse 15. So now let's look at verse 15 and let's see what Jesus says. We see here that Jesus begins to answer this question with an illustration. And he uses the example of a wedding. And he asks, can the groom's friends be sad while the groom is still with them? Would it be appropriate for the groom's friends to mourn while they still have the groom there with them? And the answer is no, of course not. While the groom is still there, it's a time of celebration. It's a time of joy. It's a time for embracing and enjoying the time of togetherness. And now when Jesus is speaking of this bridegroom, he's referring to himself. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see this theme repeated of God being a groom who marries himself to his people. In the Old Testament, God married himself to Israel. In the New Testament, Christ is the groom and the church is his bride. And so Jesus' answer is this. Why would my disciples be sad while I am still here? I, God, I am still here with them. Now is the time for joy and celebration. Now is a time for savoring each and every moment that we have together. Now is the time for being happy. For I've come here to save those who realize their need for me. Now isn't the time for somberness. Now is the time for festivity. But does this mean that Jesus's followers and us today should never fast? And the answer is no. Remember, we already saw that Jesus never told anybody to stop fasting. In fact, he taught us how to fast properly. And Jesus goes on to tell John's disciples that there will come a time when it will be appropriate for his disciples to fast. And when that time comes, his followers will fast. But they mustn't fast now because the groom 
was still with them. But one day the groom will be gone. One day the groom will be taken and betrayed and arrested. He'll be nailed to a cross. He'll die. He'll be dead for three days. And on the third day, he'll rise from the grave. And then 40 days after that, he will be taken back up into heaven. One day, the groom will be gone. One day, the groom will no longer be with his friends. And when that day comes, then will be the time for fasting and for being serious. But here's one very important catch that we have to understand. When the groom is gone, when Jesus is no longer with his disciples, does he want them to fall back into the same old joyless ritualism of the Pharisees and John's disciples? And the answer is no. You see, Jesus' disciples, his followers, they can be joyful even in their fasting because Jesus empowers us for joyful obedience. Where we formerly uh, fasted out of contrition, out of sorrow over our sins, and out of the need for conciliation to be made right with God and to be forgiven for him, where we used to fast for those reasons, now Jesus' followers can fast joyfully because they know those things have been obtained. Instead of fasting out of the hope that God will grant forgiveness and atonement, the followers of Jesus can fast out of thanks and out of the knowledge and of the assurance of knowing that salvation and atonement are secure. And that is a great cause for joy. But not only that, as if that wasn't enough, the follower of Jesus can fast joyfully even though the groom is gone because we know that one day the groom is coming back. The groom will return for his bride. And so in every way, Jesus is transforming the way his followers will relate to God and how they will express that through worship. And one of the most important and significant hallmarks of this transformation is the joy that Jesus' followers should have. And this joy should be demonstrated in everything they do. We see in the final two verses where Jesus draws examples from everyday life to show us that new things have to be treated in a different manner. And the underlying idea behind these examples is that Jesus is bringing us a new way of relating to God. There is a new paradigm being inaugurated. There is a new era that is dawning. And this new era requires a new way of doing things. You wouldn't take a new rigid patch and put it on pliable, shrunken, broken in fabric because that patch is so rigid and it, uh, that as it begins to shrink, it will pull and rip the fabric and cause an even bigger hole. And in that same way, Jesus wants his uh, wants John's followers to understand that they can't just take Jesus's teachings, and patch them on to their old way of doing things because that just won't work. 
The era that Jesus is ushering in is the era of the new covenant. And this new covenant will be marked, as we remember from Jeremiah 31, by God giving his people new hearts, giving them new hearts of flesh that have his law written upon them. And under the new covenant, God's people will no longer have dead, rigid, cold uh, hearts of sin and stone. Instead, they will have joyful, vibrant, obedient hearts. And because his people will have been transformed by God and by these new hearts, God's people can experience and enjoy the joy that comes from being close to him. And to try to pack this new covenant joy into the old covenant way of doing things, that wouldn't work. That would mess everything up. It would break the system. As Jesus said, it would be like putting new wine into old wineskins. You can't do it. Because the leather of the old wineskins, it's brittle. It is old. It's not pliable. And as this new wine ferments and expands and releases gases, it's going to cause those brittle old wineskins to burst. So instead, what you do is this. You take new wine and you put it in new wineskins. You put it in new skins that, of leather that is fresh and pliable and flexible. Skins that can expand with the fermentation of the wine. And by doing it that way, you save both the new wine and the new skin. And this is exactly the joy that Jesus brings to us. He brings us the joy of salvation. He brings us the joy of forgiveness, the joy of grace and atonement, the joy of the new covenant. And he has to give us new hearts even to be able to contain all of this joy. And this joy requires a new understanding on our part of how we relate and approach God. No longer do we have to approach God fearfully and timidly, joylessly, with a series and litany of lists and rituals that we have to go through. Now, because of Christ, we can cheerfully and enthusiastically and joyfully Go to God. We can do this because he has made us new, because he has forgiven us, and because he has brought us back to himself. And so now, loved ones, just as we did last week, we have to ask ourselves, who am I in this text? Who am I? Am I the follower of John who thinks that we still have to continue practicing joyless, ritualistic worship? Or am I the person who is willing to be transformed by Christ, to be given a new heart, a heart that is filled with joy, and being willing to demonstrate that joy in everything that I do? 
Are we trusting in our traditions as a means of making God happy? Or are we trusting in Christ and what he did for us on our behalf? And what we're talking about here is much deeper than just the style of music we like in worship or what our, our preference in worship is. Those things are trivial. I'm talking about real, important, serious matters here. I'm talking about being happy, about being enthusiastic, about being joyful to go to church and to worship and to go out wherever we might be, to be happy and enthusiastic, to tell others about the joy that we have because of Christ. And so, loved ones, do we look forward to worship? Do we greet Sunday with joy? Do we feel joy right now? And if we don't, then why are we here? Why are you watching this? If you don't feel any differently right now while you are worshiping God than you would if you were anywhere else in the world at this moment, then why do you bother to show up and go through the motions? And if God was going to begin doing something mighty here, something mighty in your life that only he could do, something that would require you to get outside of your comfort zone and maybe try something new, would you joyfully embrace it? And would you praise God for it? Or would you fight him on it every step of the way? Are we excited and enthusiastic to see what the Lord can do? Do we pray that his will be done here in Hickory Rock, here in Lewisburg, wherever you might be today? Do we pray that his will be done here as it is in heaven? Or do we want God to leave us alone and to let us just keep doing things the way we've always done them? because we feel that going through the motions is what makes us right with him. Do we want to be transformed by God? And I mean transformed in every way, transformed in such a way that it changes our lives, it changes how we deal with people, it changes how we prioritize things. Do we want to be changed in such a way that we truly experience, maybe for the first time, joy and a sense of purpose and the desire to make an impact in our families and in our communities? Do we want that kind of transformation. And if we do, then let's submit to Christ right now. And let's consecrate ourselves to him and to his will. And let's get ourselves out of the way and allow him to transform us and make us new. Do we want that kind of life-changing and life-giving transformation? The only kind of transformation that can come from yielding to and submitting to Christ and to allowing the Holy Spirit to guide us in everything we do. Do we want to be changed by God? Or do we just want to come and sit on a pew and for God to leave us alone? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, forgive us for our joylessness and our worship. Forgive us for our joyless, ritualistic approach to you. Father, you are so great and so merciful, so loving, Lord, and yet we keep you at arm's length. 
Father, forgive us of that and help us to begin to experience the joy that only Christ can bring. And Father, help this joy to overwhelm us, Lord, to just overflow every area of our lives, for it just to completely inundate us, Lord, so that we cannot contain it, so that it must overflow from us and to those who are near to us. Father, give us joy and help us to live like the people of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.